Uh, Mark is where we are, all right? Take your Bibles and go with us to Mark. I want to encourage you to come back this evening. As many of you know, our church is in somewhat of a transition with all of uh, our schedule changes and, and uh, any time that we, we do this, there's always opportunity, always opportunity for the enemy to come in and to seek to divide. And, and uh, I have a message that the Lord has laid on my heart that I would love to preach to as many of our church family as can be back tonight from Philippians chapter 2, the first five verses there. Uh, and I hope that you can come back tonight. Our guests that are with us, we want to welcome you and we thank you for being here. I got to meet some of you before the service and would love to meet others after the service if we haven't met you yet. But if you are uh, the first time or first time in a while, we are presently, yes, it's been over a year now, that we have been going through on Sunday mornings the Gospel of Mark. And we have made it about halfway through the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter number 10. And uh, today we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 45. Just a reminder today, as we go into this time where we open the Word of God, that we are not just here to check a box off the list that we went to church. We're not just here so that other people in the community will see us. And know that we are good people. Um, we are here today to hear from God. Amen? Amen? To hear from God and then to respond to God as he speaks to our heart. And what that often means, it, it often means repentance. It often means confession. Because the truth is that the closer we are to God when we open up his word and the closer we get to him... How many of you can give testimony to this? The more clearly you see things in your life that are sins or weights or things that need to be put off in our life. And so it's a wonderful time for us to come to the Word of God, allow Him to speak to us, confess, repent, and then often it also means commitment and action. And, and I hope that you will uh, pray and plan to leave here today uh, being more committed to Christ, being more committed to the kingdom of God as the Spirit of God speaks to us through His Word. Most of us in this room are called in one way to, or another to lead in some form or fashion. Whether we are leading our children, whether we are leading in our home or in our workplace or in a church setting or whatever it is, to some degree, to some level, most of us are called to leadership. And because of that, there's no shortage of, of uh, resources on leadership. If you go into bookstores, you will find all kinds of books. If you go on podcasts, you will find all kinds of podcasts. And there's conferences and seminars and, and everything that is written about leadership. But let me say this morning as Christians, not just in the church, but in our homes and in our workplaces and wherever we are, that regardless of our arena of leadership, the greatest resource that we have for leadership is the Word of God. It is the Scriptures. And as, as it is with every other subject, it is in complete contrast to the counsel of our culture. And as we see in our text, human nature has always presented a, a flawed, self-examining view of leadership. And Jesus refutes it in no uncertain terms in our text. We're in, a pass, we're in a passage here where Jesus is really dealing with some 
tough subjects. And we, we saw that last week when he told them that well, uh, wellness and wealth individually is not a sign of God's blessing. They had been taught to think that growing up in Judaism. And, and so here he is again in the, the text. He's doing the same thing. He is refuting their mindset in regards to leadership and to greatness. Last week he was redefining blessing. Today he is redefining greatness. And I know it's, you feel like a yo-yo this morning, but if you'll stand one more time for the reading of God's word, we will give honor to that and give us a little exercise as well. Verse 32, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them and they were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and speaking of himself, shall scourge him shall spit upon him, shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, you know not what ye ask. Can, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. He's presenting to them what it's like in the earthly kingdom. And then he's going to contrast that in verse 43. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant, literally the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And how many of you are thankful for this? And to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. Father, with our Bibles open this morning, we pray that the Spirit of God would teach us, would speak to us. We pray that we would hear and and understand and believe and obey and live out your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be submissive and surrendered underneath the authority of God's word that sits in front of us this morning and pray that you would speak to us just as Jesus was talking to the disciples in this text. Would you, through the Holy Spirit, speak to us individually here this morning about things in our life 
If there's anyone here this morning and they've never come to faith in you, they're trusting in something else other than your death, burial, and resurrection, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. We pray this for your glory and for the advancement of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned this last week when we were in the previous section, and I'll mention it again, that Jesus is pointing out very clearly in both of these teachings that there are two worlds, there are two kingdoms that exist, this temporary world that we live in right now with its quest for pleasure and possessions and power. And then there is the kingdom of God with a totally different set of values and means of operation. And you and I live in this kingdom. We are pilgrims in this kingdom. We live in this kingdom, but we should not live for this kingdom. And that is what he is trying to get them to understand in in contrasting this. Like many today, the disciples are are still very, very earthly-minded, and and so they're seeking self-promotion, and they're seeking recognition. I want you to notice and underline the words in verse number 43. If you have a habit of, of marking in your Bible, I would encourage you to mark these words in verse 43. But so shall it not be among you. In other words, I'm calling you to a different kind of leadership. This should not be characteristic of us as the children of God. He is teaching them that worldly ideas of status and privilege and leadership have no place in the kingdom of God. One of the great lies that exists in our culture, and and I guess in just about every culture that has ever been, every generation, is the idea that the more the people of God look like and sound like and act like and live like, those around us who are not the people of God, the better opportunity we have to reach them. If we will adopt their ideas of leadership and greatness, we will have a better opportunity to reach them. But the New Testament does not bear that out, nor does church history bear that out. Instead, church history bears out what the New Testament teaches, and that, that, that is that God's people are always at their most effective in an alien culture when by our lifestyle, by our leadership, by all that we do, we are clearly countercultural, especially when it comes to status, privilege, and leadership. So in our text, Jesus redefines for his apostles and thus for you and I as well, what is true leadership? What is true greatness? And let me just ask us the question this morning, how do we view greatness? How do we view leadership? Because obviously if the apostles of Jesus had a blurred vision of this, it's easy for you and I to have a blurred vision of it as well. And this is definitely a two-part sermon. I will not get through the whole thing this morning, so we will cut off when we need to and pick back up next week. But the first thing I want you to see Jesus is teaching is this, that kingdom greatness is the way of suffering. Kingdom greatness, Jesus is telling his apostles, is not like you have seen in 
the kingdom where you live. It's not even what you have seen in the religious circles that you have grown up in. Here is what I want you to understand. And this is something that the American church needs to greatly grasp. That kingdom greatness is the way of suffering. For the third time in as many chapters, 8, 9, and now 10, Jesus again lays out for the disciples that he, their Messiah King, was going to go to Jerusalem and there he was going to be arrested and beaten and killed. You remember in chapter 8 that Peter rebuked him for saying this. We will not allow this to happen to you. The disciples are not easily accepting this mindset, this truth that Jesus, their Messiah, is going to go to Jerusalem and now they're on their way there, that when they get there that he is going to be arrested and beaten and spat upon and crucified. Kingdom greatness What he's teaching them doesn't look like climbing the corporate ladder. Doesn't look like climbing the political ranks. Instead, he says it is often the way of suffering. It is not a path of self-glory or human success. And Jesus leads the way, doesn't he? He doesn't ask them to suffer without them seeing him suffer. Jesus leads the way because in the kingdom of God, leaders lead by example. So look again at verse 32 through 34. What he tells them, he took again the twelve, began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is himself, shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. By the way, the the, the term son of man goes back to Daniel in reference to the Messiah. It speaks of his authority. He's telling him, me, the the Lord, the, the one in authority, the Messiah is going to go through all of this. And they shall mock him and scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. Stop there. What Jesus has been saying already What he continues to say in our text and what he will continue to say all the way up until the very day that he is arrested is that kingdom greatness is often the way of suffering. Again, this doesn't build great crowds when you preach this. But I believe that there's still people who want to hear what the word of God has to say. Amen? So we just preach it like he tells it. We don't exaggerate it. We just say what he says. And what he is saying in this text is greatness and leadership as this world thinks of it is not greatness and leadership defined by the word of God and by scripture. And I I can't just skip past those verses that we just read without reminding us all why the Son of Man, why Jesus was delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes and the Gentiles and why they mocked him and why they scourged him and why they spat upon him and why they crucified him. Why must he walk the path of suffering and death? Why can't he just come in and take over and save them politically? Because he came to die For our eternal salvation. He came 
to pay for our sins so that we would not have to pay for them eternally. He did it to take our place, as the, the songwriter wrote. I used to love to, to sing this song and hear it sung. It says, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace, but Jesus, God's son, took my place. Aren't you thankful that he took your place? The old hymn I love, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on that cross, you were wounded for me. And gone my transgressions, and now I am free, all because Jesus was wounded for me. This is why he went to the cross. This is why he suffered. He did not die as a martyr, but he dies as a suffering substitute savior for you and I. For our sins. Romans 4 verse 25 speaking of Jesus says this. Who was delivered for our offenses. And he was raised again. Notice these two words. For our or in place of our justification. Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. He suffered and died for our sins. And if he suffered he says... Don't be surprised in the world, in the earthly kingdom where you live, if they hate you and you have to suffer as well. And yet there is a fundamental difference, isn't there, between the suffering of Jesus and the suffering of his saints. The suffering of Jesus was for a saving purpose. We understand this. Jesus alone is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist says, that takes away the sins of the world. He alone is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. You and I cannot get to God without going through Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator between God and man. His suffering had a saving purpose. Our suffering, on the other hand, doesn't have a saving purpose. It has a sanctifying purpose. It is so that we can point people to the suffering and saving purposes of Jesus. So that's why Paul wrote this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Notice this next phrase, and the fellowship of his what? Sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. It's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Speaking of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. That's the reason That he suffered. That's the reason that he died. If you're here this morning and you've never began a personal relationship with God, never been restored to to a relationship with God, that sin has broken. If you've never done that, I'm telling you this morning, the reason he went to Jerusalem and the reason that he went through suffering and the reason that he died is so that he might be a ransom for many. 
that he could save our souls so that you do not have to go through eternal suffering and judgment. Moving on, verses 35 through 39 of our text, they're really, I was kind of waiting for snickers and uh, laughing when I read this because it, it boggles my mind. Jesus has just told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be flogged. But it's like they're saying, we know what you just said, but, but while we have you here for just a moment, while we have your attention, let us bring something up and kind of settle something that we've been talking amongst ourselves about, you know, since we really were the first ones to kind of leave all and follow you and and since we were the ones that you allowed upon the, the Mount of Transfiguration in that special moment, we, we figured that we would go ahead and kind of work out our seating arrangements in the kingdom. And we would like VIP seating. And, and really, more specifically, not just front row, second row, but if you don't mind, the two seats on each side of you. Unbelievable. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And then in verse 39, they answer what? We can do that. We can be all that you are. We, we, we'll, we'll go to whatever means. These are the same guys who the night after the Last Supper, before Jesus' crucifixion, they all went away. They all went away. But Jesus tells them very kindly, actually, you know what? If you do continue to follow me, if you do continue to be my disciple, you will suffer. And you will die. Another reminder, church, that Jesus never promised his followers wealth and health and no trouble in this life. In fact, Acts chapter 12 reminds us that James is mentioned as being killed by Herod Agrippa. John experienced exile on the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Paul executed in Rome. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas killed with a spear in India. This is what discipleship is. We have a hard time, like the apostles, getting our minds around it, don't we? American Christianity has a hard time getting this. It's so hard for us to grasp it. But I believe according to the scriptures, I don't know that we will ever be called upon to suffer like the apostles did, but I believe I have a responsibility as a preacher of the gospel to tell you we need to be prepared to suffer for Christ's sake. Amen. Yea, even die for Christ's sake, if that's what we're called to do. Which is why he says, as the coming of the Lord draws near, that we need to be stronger and stronger in our faith. We need to prepare our young people. Are you willing to live for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? In fact, in 1998, when I became a youth pastor and I began preaching to teenagers, Bob, I'll be honest, I was a little embarrassed to talk to them about suffering for Jesus because they had no concept. I would go back into books 
missionary books, old books, of course, the Bible, but trying to get them to understand suffering. But let me say in 2020, what is this, 2024, that I'm embarrassed if I don't say something to you about suffering for Jesus because you may very well be the generation that suffers for Christ. Which is why we are investing in you and we want your faith to be strong and we need to have the same faith the same strength in our own life, in our own heart. Our culture says we understand what you believe and we will have none of it. We will not tolerate it. This week in my study, I pulled out an old hymn that perhaps we need to resurrect in the church. Listen to the words of this old hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Are you a soldier of the cross? Because that's what we're called to be. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stern the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Now, the hopeful part. You say, that's a pretty depressing part. The hopeful part is this. It's found in the last phrase of verse 34. So look at it. And the third day he shall rise again. Yes, he's going to Jerusalem. Yes, he's going to suffer. Yes, he's going to be flogged. Yes, he's going to be beaten. Yes, they're going to spit in his face. They're going to whip him with, with the cat of nine tails. They're going to hang him on a cross. But know this, on the third day, he will rise again. You see, there is a hopeful side to suffering. And that is that suffering doesn't end with suffering. Eventually, suffering leads to glory and victory and triumph because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which is why every Sunday we come in here together and we are reminded that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Because it is our hope. As the devil prowls around trying to devour us, we stand firm in our faith, entrusting ourselves to God and, and putting our, our suffering in perspective of God's eternal promise for us in Christ so that at the proper time he may exalt us. Suffering is not forever for the follower of Jesus. It's probable for the child of God. But remember this, if it comes, it's only temporary and the worst that they can threaten you and I with is to be in the presence of Jesus, our Savior. That's it. Which Paul says is far better, by the way. Far better. After a little while, God will bring us home to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ. Notice this little phrase. After that ye have what? Suffered a while. 
make you perfect or mature, establish, strengthen, settle settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I remind you again that God has not come to make us comfortable. He has come to conform us to the image of his son and to prepare us for glory. Eternal glory. We must be prepared to suffer. And that is what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. And that's what you and I need to understand. And that leads us to the second truth in the text. Not only is kingdom greatness the way of suffering, but number two, kingdom greatness is the way of surrender. Look what he says again in verse 40. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. In other words, guys, it doesn't matter if you are in the last seat of the fifth balcony. If that's where God wants you in his kingdom, it's not the focal point. There is going to be one and one alone who we will exalt and worship in Jesus. There there won't be all the seats up here with all the the special apostles and saints who are going to be worshipped. There is one that we will worship, Jesus Christ alone. It's a way of surrender. Surrender has become a curse word in the world in which we live, in this earthly kingdom. Whatever you do, don't surrender. And we're almost embarrassed for James and John in their request. They're still eat up with self. You know anybody else eat up with self? Let us be careful not to pull out the splinter of pride in James and John's eye while we have a log of pride in our own eyes. Because the truth is, is that we all battle with pride just like they do. We all battle with surrendering. What stops us from surrendering? What stops us from saying, God, you can have all of my life. Every door is yours. Nothing is off limits. What stops us from surrendering? What keeps us from allowing God to have every part of our will? I believe that pride is the great enemy of surrender. And you can't read this section. If you read through this section and and it didn't occur to you, these guys are pretty proud. What What an arrogant request. I mean, you can't read it. Without being faced with the vice of pride and in virtue, the, the vir- or in contrast, the virtue of humility and their effects. The bottom line in scripture is that God hates pride. And listen, he won't be around it. He, he goes away from it. He pushes away from it. But he honors humility. How different this men- mentality is from the earthly kingdom. Let me say this this morning. What he is saying and what he wants the disciples to know is that the key ingredient for spiritual leadership is humility. He's going to live this out in his last days too. Let me just take a moment this morning and I'll try to kind of wrap up our section this morning by reminding us of what the scripture says because it says so much about pride and humility. And I'm going to give you all these scriptures because my opinion isn't worth two cents, honestly. 
But what the Word of God has to say is worth everything, isn't it? And our relationship with God is affected by pride, and our relationship with one another is affected by pride, and our marriages are affected by pride, and our, and our work relationships are affected by pride, and we as Christian, Christians need to get a grasp on what Jesus said that we are called to. What kind of leadership are we called to? It's one of humility. Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 21.4, a high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 30, it says pride is an element of the reprobate mind. In 1 Timothy 3.6, that pride comes from the devil. In 1 John 2.16, that pride is a characteristic of this world. In 1 Timothy 6.3, that pride is a mark of false teachers. In James 4, 6, that pride alienates us from God because God resisteth the proud. Remember what James writes in James 4, 6, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Anybody in here this morning in need of God's grace? I hope you want his grace rather than his distance. Pride causes distance, humility Brings grace, brings closeness, which is why Micah said in Micah 6, 8, He that showed thee, O man, what is good, what, is, what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk, what? Humbly with our God. Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Isaiah 66, 2. To this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit. Again, God will look to that. God will move to that. Psalm 10, 17. Lord, thou hast heard the desires of the humble. Proverbs 15, verse 33. Before honor is humility. All through the New Testament, we are told that we are to be clothed with humility. We are to put on humility. We are to walk in humility. Any of you that just comes easy and natural for you? He says every day when you rise, put on humility. When you go to put on your clothes, put on humility too. Before you speak to your spouse, before you engage In that situation, before you go to work, put it on. And the truth is that pride is the defining sin of humanity and that all other sins feed pride. All temptations, all solicitations to do evil of any kind and every kind are based upon self-gratification. The reason a temptation is a temptation is because we want to do it, right? Because we want to do it and it appeals to our personal satisfaction, our personal pride then says we will do what we want to do. Which is an expression of our own self-love. Which is why in the list of sins that God hates in Proverbs, you know what the very first one is? A proud look. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud heart, a proud attitude. 
And yet in the world of humanity, pride is exalted, it is lifted up, it is presented not as a vice, it's presented as a virtue in its own subtle way. It dominates our culture. And we even in this generation, we've even found a way to find Bible verses that will somehow give way to our pride and our self-exaltation. And that's why Jesus is having a very difficult time getting this lesson across to the, the apostles. I mean, these guys do love Jesus. They are following Jesus. They do love the truth. They believe in him. They believe in his kingdom. They're saved. And they're still struggling greatly with pride. Anybody identify with these guys? Yes. But here's what we need to see. They still have a very materialistic view of the kingdom of God. Because of their own personal desires for exaltation. And Jesus is teaching here, church, listen, that it is not about our position. It is not about our seats. Surrender to God and your place in the kingdom now and in eternity. Understand your role in the kingdom of God and surrender to it. How many of you would, would agree that surrender is a word that the church needs to resurrect? Surrender. Oh, we used to sing it almost every invitation until it got to be so much of a lie we stopped singing it. I surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. Pride keeps us from surrendering. And humility helps us to surrender. We will never escape conflict until we surrender. We will never have peace as long as we continue to keep our pet sins hid away and think that we can live one way Monday through Saturday and then come in here with everyone else and worship on Sunday. It will never happen until in humility we come before Jesus and say, this is who I am. Choose surrender over control. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you need to always be the driver. Oh, well, I get car sick if I'm not driving. I've heard that one. I need to be driving. I need to have the remote control. I need to be the one talking. And a list of other things. You may have an imbalance of control and surrender. You say, well, those are just physical things. I know. But they usually spill into other areas of our life as well. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we'll be done. I'm trying to practice for March coming up for the 930 service. Now let me close with this. Paul says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed 
by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. By the mercies of God, present, let's say that word together, present your bodies. Surrender your body, your mind, your will to the Lord. The more we try to control, the more we are afraid of losing control. Oh, I got to hold on to that. I got I got to hold on to that. Why don't you let go and surrender your will to the Lord, your timelines to the Lord? Your timelines about getting married, your timelines about having children, your timelines about that job. Why don't you just say, "God, they're yours." Your time, your way. These talents you've given me, this, this talent to sing, this talent, talent to play, this, this talent for hospitality, it, it's yours. Whatever talent you've given me, it's yours. My time, did you know this? We all have different paychecks, different amounts in this room. Probably not any two of us have the same. But you know something that all of us have the exact amount of every single week? Time. We all have the same amount of time. God, here's my time. Boy, coming at 4 o'clock for choir practice on Sunday, that's asking a lot, Brother Brian. Or is it? Or is it? Our treasures. Realizing, God, I don't know why you're, you've chosen me to filter these treasures through, but they're yours. I surrender them to you. Not holding on to this. Is, uh, there's my alarm, I guess. Close up. <laughs> Truly, it would, it's something we need to talk about more in our churches. Surrender is something that we need to give to the Lord. I wonder if there's something in your life this morning through the Holy Spirit, not through the coercion of me, but through the Holy Spirit that he just said, this is something you need to surrender. You need to be prepared for suffering. Right now, bottom line, somebody comes to you and living for Jesus means suffering or living for Jesus means giving up something that you don't want to give up. What are you going to do? That's what Jesus was preparing his apostles and his disciples for. And I believe in American Christianity and culture more than ever, we need to go back to these passages. Greatness does not look like status. It looks like suffering. Greatness in the kingdom of God, it doesn't look like ruling and reigning and in control of your own life. It looks like surrender. Surrender.